You're listening to Season 4 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam. For new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans. We analyze all 42 years of Gundam, episode-by-episode and movie-by-movie, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 4.4. More than peace, more than justice, more than freedom. All I want is you. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and if you're wondering about the episode titles this season, they are all lyrics from the song that plays at the end of the movie. We just thought they were apropos. And I'm Nina, enjoying the unexpected podcasting benefit of meeting new, fascinating people and having them on your podcast. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 524 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Loganopolis, Hermes H, Hermes, they didn't say, Antonio, and Yomin. This podcast would not be possible without your support. And I know we only just broke 500, but can we hit 550 by the end of this month? I have no doubt there are at least 26 of you out there who have considered becoming patrons. Let today be the day you do it. MSB is entirely listener-supported. We don't have sponsors, ads, or a media conglomerate to answer to, and we'd like to keep it that way. If you enjoy this podcast, please become a monthly supporter at GundamPodcast.com Patreon, or make a one-time payment at ko-fi.com slash Gundam Podcast. When this episode releases on Saturday, November 27th, 2021, there will be just four days left in this year's pin promotion. The only way to get a pin is to be a patron, pledging five US dollars or more per month on the deadline, Wednesday, December 1st. Sign up and see full details of all our great patron benefits at GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. This week we are joined by two returning guests, Sean DMR and Sarah McCostumes. Sean is a longtime Gundam fan and has dropped by from time to time to talk lore, mobile suits, and the narrative structure of tragedy, while also appearing regularly on our Zero Context Gundam bonus episodes. Sarah is a fellow podcaster, sometimes about Gundam, and served as our Ireland correspondent for the Dublin arc of Double Zeta. But outside of Gundam and podcasting, Sarah is also a professional costumer working on film and TV productions, and received a Master of Fine Arts degree in performance costume at the Edinburgh College of Art. And Sean studied physical theater and mask performance at the London International School of Performing Arts. So for this episode, we have asked them to join us for a discussion about costumes, masks, uniforms, and of course, suits, the mobile, pilot, normal, and regular old cloth varieties. <laughs> Welcome to the program, Sean and Sarah. Thank you. Hello. It is a pleasure to talk to you two again. Thanks for coming back on. Surprised you let me back on. <laughs> <laughs> Your guest spot last time was an absolute delight as an audience listener person, so 
I'm not surprised. Oh, thank you. As Polonius says in Hamlet, the apparel oft proclaims the man. And that is certainly the case here. It's clear that a tremendous amount of thought has gone into the dizzying array of outfits on display in Char's counterattack. The clothes the characters choose for themselves can tell us how they view themselves, or perhaps how they wish to be perceived by those around them. The uniforms adopted by the Federation and by Neo Zeon express the ideals and the priorities of each faction, and their mobile suits are expressive of the characters' inward selves. Beyond that, the interplay between each of these, uh, their predecessors in other prior Gundam shows, and their real-world inspirations can tell us even more. In fact, the costuming of Char's counterattack is so dense that we could probably spend this whole podcast just discussing Char without exhausting the topic. I am going to insist that we take a wider-ranging look at the movie as a whole, but perhaps it would be best for us to start with the man himself, and one of the most important questions of the movie. Why are Char's eyes so consistently visible? This is a character defined in prior entries by the uh, hiddenness of his eyes. His mask in First Gundam was iconic, and Quattro Bugina is really nothing without his sunglasses. Yet in Char's counterattack, the mask does not appear except in a flashback, and the sunglasses are only worn in two scenes. Before we hear from our guests, I have a theory, hmm. which is essentially that in previous shows in which Char Quattro has appeared, he was much less good at lying about his own thoughts, feelings, and opinions, and so he needed the mask to give him some ability to hide what he was thinking and feeling at any given time. At this point in his life, he has become very good at lying about his thoughts and feelings, and so no longer needs that like physical aid to deception. I think that's pretty close to my read on it, too. Um, I just spent part of today going back and rewatching The Thread of Xeon, which is episode 12 of Mobile Suit Gundam. This is the episode where you, you've got the Garma funeral, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the, really the only Char moment you have in this episode is... Um, when he's at the bar and Cassilia's hench underling secret agent super spy shows up. Um, but Char is wearing, it's the first time I think we see Char in sunglasses. And uh, there's a major difference in the emotion that he's able to portray in the sunglasses versus what he's able to portray in the Stallhelm. Like the Stallhelm is a very playful mask in that it's it's very versatile and he can use it in a ton of different ways. And the animators use this to their uh, advantage. Um, when you talk about masks for performance, Generally, we're talking about masks that have sort of like a spark of life of their own. Mm -hmm. Uh, They bring something to the table. They're an equal collaborator almost uh, for performance. And not all masks do this, right? So if you look at uh, like samurai armor or the Gundam's face or the Greek tragedy masks as we see them on like the walls of theaters or like religious masks or ceremonial masks, a lot of these masks don't have all that much play anymore and they may be derived from masks that at one point had play uh the tragedy masks are a little bit more playful than than these others but if you compare that to commedia dell'arte which is uh, italian comedic half mask performance where the bottom part of the actor's face is exposed you've got these characters that are very expressive and playful like there's 
Arlecchino, who's this trickster who's always hungry and is always scheming and coming up with plans to get money so that he can get food. And the mask has sort of this upturned nose and very round cheeks and highlights the eyes to make the character look kind of like a pig, which highlights both the intelligence and the canniness of the character and also the stomach-driven nature of all of his actions. And it's usually his hunger that gets in the way and causes him to foul up his plans. And then you've got Capitano, who's got like a big nose and a big mustache, and the mask is usually paired with a codpiece, and like it's all about strutting, but people make fun of him. Those masks bring a lot of character to the table and have a lot of things to say about the character being portrayed just from the jump. Uh, And when you turn a mask that is playful like one way or another, you can reveal different like facets of the character. Uh, So like the eyes of a mask are very important because when a face might be tilted up, it's going to create, depending on the perspective, like an innocent looking face or uh, a a scheming looking face with the same set of eyes. Right. So a mask that can do multiple things like that is is playful um, and is is active. Yeah. In the Gundam context, when you talk about that play of the mask, the first thing that comes to my mind is the actually the opening, uh, the second opening for Zeta Gundam, where there's a bit of quattro where he <laughs> yeah. takes the sunglasses sort of half off. God, yeah. And then you see him look off to the side with a sort of eye cut yeah. that's very expressive. It's So I went through the two openings of Zeta frame by frame today as well. <laughs> and that second one is like chilling, especially when you watched it back to back with the first one, right? Because it's almost the same animation, but they, they're they doing different things with his eyes, right? And like animators have a lot more flexibility than a mask maker, but it's the same idea, right? Like it's almost the exact same face. And yet suddenly we have something very different happening on the screen or for the audience. Um, somehow I got distracted into talking about playfulness and masks. Uh, oh, so Nina was saying that like he's gotten much better at lying, right? Whereas in, in Mobile Suit Gundam, he uses the stall helm to conceal more. And the stall helm is a very playful mask. It's a good comparison to comedia masks, which reveal the actor's uh, lower face. So you see their mouth very occasionally, their nose as well, but generally just their mouth and chin. Um, the stall helm is blank enough, but like the eyes have play and can be threatening and can be friendly based on how he's holding his head and what he's doing with his mouth. And so with the stall helm, he can fake it to Garma all day, every day. But then when he switches to the sunglasses, he's much more transparent to the audience. Um, and I think transparent to Cassilia's hench, but like there's a trend from Char using the bigger mask to to hide more and using it to his advantage and then revealing more with the sunglasses in first Gundam and then being better with the sunglasses in Zeta to now his face is his mask. Although the sunglasses still show up in ways that I think indicate interesting things. Like you could do a whole bunch of stuff just about Char's sunglasses in CCA, but... I, I do. <laughs> I have those notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I suppose for me, like Char's mask and or sunglasses are extremely um, present in CCA just because of their absence. You can just sort of feel their legacy T-posing at you menacingly in the background because <laughs> not only is he unmasked, but like his hair is like completely scraped back from his face. Mm-hmm. The way he stands when he wears his little sort of red char suit is just very like upright, very like outwards. You know, he's giving that speech, he's like spreading his arm. It's just so outward focused. And yet, because you know Char, you probably know Char if you're watching this movie, it does feel wrong to you and you feel like there should be something there and it's mm-hmm. just it's just very effective, I think. I mean, to sort of continue that thought about the absence of them making them very present, 
Char's presentation in uh, Char's Counterattack is very much about evoking the legend of Char from the past. His outfits, for instance, his mobile suits, are all about evoking memories of the way he looked and the things that he did in the past. And so to have the mask not be present, it's jarring for the audience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, beyond his own sort of ability to lie or ability to hide how he's feeling and what he's thinking, it also symbolizes that he stopped resisting being put in a position of power and authority. Yeah. Because he can't lead a government wearing sunglasses all the time. He can't lead Neo Zeon wearing a helmet and mask all the time. Yeah. And if you remember when he gives the big speech in Dakar in Zeta, he takes the sunglasses off for the sake of the speech. Yeah. As I was going back and rewatching parts of Gundam and Zeta, there's a trend in Char's masks, um, and there's an interesting blip in the trend, right? Like, which is the Rick DS, which, like, if you look at the Rick DS as a mask, it's a very innocent mask um, because it's all eye and has no mouth, um, and it looks deeply innocent, like it's just there to perceive the world. I I think perhaps you are um, projecting innocence onto this giant death machine that. Um, may reflect your feelings about the Rick Diaz more than the Rick Diaz itself. Well, but I, I get what he means about big eyes. Yeah. Large eyes on certain characters are more expressive, more childlike. There is a, an innocence attached to it as a feature. And innocence isn't maybe exactly the right word, but if you look at like the Dom, the Dom stands out in contrast to so many other mobile suits in First Gundam because it is all eye, whereas the Zaku and the Gelgoog all have sort of like this mouth and their eyes have this, this sort of like angle track that gives them sort of like a um, threatening aspect by default. Their primary mask is somewhat threatening, but then the Dom and then even more so with the Rick Dias just have this massive eye. And that indicates to an audience, like if you look at theatrical masks, the bigger the eye tends more towards characters oriented towards discovery and innocence mm. because they're learning about things. It's a mask mm. of learning and of openness. Um, so the Rick is a very interesting blip in sort of Char's character arc over the three shows. And it's interesting to me that like he starts there and also during the first episode, he's not wearing a mask at all. You only ever see him inside of his um, normal suit helmet. But like he's got this very innocent looking mobile suit face. He's not wearing a mask. I think that there's something there about the character arc that, that Char has at the mm-hmm. beginning of Zeta and where it goes. Because it's also very quickly replaced by the Hyakushiki, which is one of the least innocent <laughs> of his. It's still expressive. Mm-hmm. It has a mouth space, but the mouth is guarded. The eye is now completely invisible because like mm-hmm. the shininess of that glass is so hard to read. Um, and it doesn't read to me as an eye in the same way that the, say the Rick Diaz's eye does, right? And like it doesn't even have the mono sensor that you see move around like a Zaku. Within Zeta, we go from the most innocent moment for Char to the most guarded, flashy, I'm going to perform a role. And then from there we go to, I'm losing the sunglasses even, and I'm constructing this entire persona for Dakar. And then that plays through, I think, to to where we are in CCA. Even within the terms of Zeta itself, but especially once you take into account the events of Char's counterattack, the story of Quattro in Zeta is essentially the story of Char's failure to be Quattro. Totally. Of his desire to be this other person and then his inability to stick to it. Yeah. um, Because of both internal and external factors. Yeah, that sounds like a much more succinct way of saying what I was trying to say there with the, the mask changes. And I think if you're going to read Zeta as Char's failure to be Quattro, I kind of think that you can take that sentiment and apply it to CCA as Char's failure to be Char, Hmm. almost. (laughs) 
which leads me into um a point that I very much have about Shar, which is that Shar is and should maybe be read as a persona of whoever this person known as Shar is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because it's brought up several times by him and Nanai and maybe even a couple of other people, but him taking up this mantle of his father and taking on his father's name and the pressure of living up to a created persona that is acknowledged to not be natural for him, even by people around him. Yeah, I do think there's an identity crisis there. I I was thinking this earlier, Sarah, when you were talking about the masks and the sunglasses and how really we can think of the mask from first Gundam as being the Shar identity. And the sunglasses are the quattro identity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it would seem to follow then that we've seen a, a sort of a progression from more guarded to more open, except that's absolutely not who he is in the movie. Yeah. And so the trend that we would expect towards openness as the mask falls away is really quite, quite false. It's an illusion. So my notes about the movie here start off about his red military outfit. Mm. And like I've watched this movie a lot, never with an actual focus towards costume. And when I started sat down to watch it yesterday, you know, the first time we see Shar in his sort of red his sort of his Shar costume, as I like to call it, he is projected into space. Like it's it's on stage. Mm-hmm. And he gives a funny little speech in the projection and stuff and then the speech ends we cut to him after the speech and he immediately starts unfastening the shoulders of his cape and he says the line of I feel like a client like under mm. not a subtle show like <laughs> it's very much bam out of the gate this is a persona that he's putting on this is the costume of Shar the persona of Shar Aznable played by Shar Aznable again like every time he wears this it is for a public for on stage for for a performance he wears it to meet with the Federation to impress mm-hmm. upon them that the Shar Aznable is meeting with them. Yeah, yeah. And like I notice whenever he meets with the Federation, he doesn't say anything really. I think he says like two words, but he just comes in and just like is there in the outfit. It seems so clear to me that when he's giving that speech, really when he's giving all of the speeches, um, that he's very stage managed. Mm. I'm sure this outfit was picked for him by all of the various officials and financiers and high generals who surround him and who make up his neo Zeon government. Yeah. In that first scene, he's even wearing a sword. I noticed that too, yeah. A sword because, I mean, Shar had a thing on his hip in First Gundam, <laughs> so this Shar has to have a thing on yeah. his hip. Well, and throughout the movie, there's sort of a contrast between... Char's costuming, which feels very formal and conservative and kind of traditional, and Amaro's, which feels more casual, more youthful, more modern. Mm-hmm. More utilitarian. Char's mm. is all like very tightly fitted, very much tailored to his form, shaped to be impressive. He's got the shoulder caps to make him look broader than he actually is. Yeah. I-, I love his Char cosplay. <laughs> He's got little like mini capes on his shoulders. Yeah, yeah. there's little draped fabric and the, the epaulets and the braid and all of it. Mm. <laughs> I've looked at this outfit so much because I do plan on making it one day, but I, I've spent a lot of time looking at this. And when he wears the um, pilot suit, which I'll, I'll come back to later because I do think we should give some a special focus to that. But I'll just point out it also has those like extended shoulders to make him look like a more physically imposing figure than he actually is. Yeah. <sighs> but even just 
you know, the fact that Char has two different uniforms, one that is his costume uniform and one that is his, okay, I'm actually working uniform. Mm -hmm. Amaro just Mm -hmm. has the one. You know, Mm -hmm. Char has pajamas and a robe and slippers and Amaro just sleeps in his boxers. (laughs) His boxers that are the exact same stripy pattern that they were in First Gundam, (laughs) by the way. Oh my God, I should notice that. (laughs) I don't believe he's ever changed them in his life. (laughs) Stinky boy. These boxers, uh, these stripes are thicker. I went back and checked. <laughs> so they're not the exact same boxers, just the same style. Well, it's because he got thicker. The boxers had to as well. That's <laughs> true. Um, well, in that scene, you know, the scene when he's wearing like a sleeveless shirt and he's doing some sort of monitoring of the new Gundam's psycho frame with a little like device, very similar to the device he was using in the first scene when he appears in first Gundam, when he's doing some sort of computer nerd stuff. There's a continuity. Yeah. Like overall, like everything kind of about Amuro, his normal suit feels like you took his normal suit from first Gundam and just kind of like redesigned it for piloting the new Gundam. Um, he's still wearing like a wee fatty uniform or Londo Bell uniform, whatever the faction is. Um, through his costuming, Amuro feels like basically the same character as he was in first Gundam, whereas Shar feels so completely different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and as you pointed out, the the hair changes. Amuro's hair is basically the same as it's always been. Char's now is swept back, even though it's still a little long. There's something... I I tend to read Char as a tragic character, and like I would like to be a Char apologist, but that seems like an untenable position. Having watched this movie several times, it just seems like it's not going to fly. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh... There is a tragic arc for Char, which is that in Mobile Suit Gundam, he was in control of this Char persona, right? Like, this was his tool. And then he went through a period of discovery and Nick's trying things out in Zeta, you know, around and find out, and found out. And now he's in a situation where he's still now in that persona, but it's no longer his. Yeah. He's no longer in control of it, right? Whereas Amuro, uh, much as I disapprove of him choosing to double down and become a cop, you know, Titans Part 2 Space Cop McGee, is being exactly who he is. He's not bowed to this external pressure to be X, Y, or Z, whereas that is not the case for Char. Yeah, Amaro in this movie conveys through his outfits and, you know, everything else that he has rejected the call to, like, higher office, to higher position, to be... um, As Char puts it, a politician. Mm -hmm. Right. I love that scene. When Char accuses Amaro of wasting his talents, Mm. I think this is what he's getting at. Char has allowed himself to be pushed into a leadership role that he doesn't want. I mean, it's pretty clear that he is not happy about this situation, but Amuro has refused that, partly by sort of hitching himself to Bright Mm. and being in a situation where he can never be the one in charge because Bright is always there running interference for him. Amuro does, however, want to be a hero, or rather, the hero. Mm -hmm. I think that has persisted. And all of his outfits stand out. I mean, he's mm. he is like the commander of the mobile suits for the Rock Hylum. You know, he has a uniquely colored uniform and when he's in his normal suit, mm-hmm. uh, he has the red stripe on it, which presumably indicates his heroic status. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And he doesn't make a big deal about it, but he doesn't need to because as Quest shows us from that one interaction they have on the Rock Hylum, everybody who meets him knows who he is. Yeah, it's very it's it's very much a contrast from Zeta where he wasn't doesn't seem to be comfortable being Amuro Ray, but here he is, you know, simply vibing in it. Mm. 
I also did notice that the uh, the blue suit that he wears whenever they go down to whichever colony it is, that's, that's the same as Quattro's from Dakar. They swap suits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like that, you know, that's fun. Yeah, I noticed the suit mostly because he, he does sort of roll up the sleeves or push up the sleeves a bit. It's brighter and uh, flashier than what Char is wearing at the same time. Yeah, Amaro conveys youth, whereas Char's is very conservative and old school. Mm. Also, just that suits are good for grappling. <laughs> <laughs> They've got lapels to grab. Need to have those lapels. Exactly. Oh, God. I do want to talk about Char's sort of mustard suit. Mm-hmm. Or actually, actually, there's a bit of a greeny tinge to that suit. You know, kind of yellowy greeny, so it's kind of chartreuse. Hey. Uh, I, see, I see what you did there. Anyway, <laughs> I do want to talk about it because that mustardy chartreuse suit seems to be his kind of his choice of outfit. Mm-hmm. And sort of maybe the same with that, you know, the kind of orangey yellow normal suit that he wears. It kind of feels like Char has graduated from having like his favorite color be red to like <laughs> sort of mellowing out to yellow. And it feels mm-hmm. like a sort of maturing or something. I'm not quite sure about it. You know, whereas first Gundam Char was like, you know, Batman voice, does it come in red? <laughs> um, yeah. This yeah. Char feels like an actual adult who's like, maybe I will try a tasteful chartreuse today. Which is a progression from the bright gold of the Hyakushiki, perhaps. Mm. Mm. And I do want to transition from that, actually, to the Sazabi. Big boy. Because one of the first things that I noticed about the Sazabi when I started actually, like, thinking about it is that it's red. And, yeah, I know, duh, it's red. Uh, All (laughs) Char's mobile suits are red. But no, they aren't. Most of Char's mobile suits are salmon. But the Sazabi is distinctly red. It is a bright, vibrant red. And there are a bunch of other things that it does to evoke those old mobile suits, to evoke the idea of Char, but I think in its coloration, it is really conveying that the Sazabi is about the legend of Char, mm. not the person who Char actually was. Absolutely. This is also him at his most bloodthirsty. Mm. That's true. Okay, I'm looking at pictures of the Galgugan. These are salmon. Yeah, the paint color is Char's pink, not Char's mm-hmm. red, right? But that's not a paint color that shows up in the paint chart for this Master Grade Sazabi. <laughs> Yeah, it's also wearing the stall helm, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is where the stall helm is in this movie. It's on the Sazabi. Well, and the um the Sazabi's not a mouth, but like chin protector mm. is taken from the Hyakushiki. Um the like yeah. big horn, I guess, on it, not the two side horns, but the the large one in the back resembles I think the Gelgoog. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if I was having a moment where I was looking at that frame by frame when he first gets into the Sazabi in like the first reveal shot and like before the protector for the mono eye rolls up, like it's putting on sunglasses. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, huh, the eye is drawn almost exactly like the Rick DSI, except it's on mm-hmm. a rotating track. Um, but I wasn't sure that I, you know, I don't know how much is in there and or that's just like them throwing in the greebles for us, for us nerds. But mm-hmm. well, one thing it definitely does have in common with the Rick Diaz is that the cockpit is in the head. Mm, that's true. And I can actually point out this was very important to Tomino because the Sazabi was originally designed with the cockpit in the torso, like most mobile suits. But on orders from Tomino, the cockpit was moved to the head, which is like the Rick Dias, but also like the Ziong. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, this, by the way, is the reason why the um, size of the cockpit isn't right. 
consistent. Yeah. <laughs> Tomino's interfering again. Yeah, they they moved the cockpit without changing the size of the mobile suit, uh, which is why the cockpit is too big for uh, the <laughs> mobile suit. Uh, I feel like there's something to say somewhere in relation to the the chartreuse uh, wink wink comment. The thing about Char moving towards a different color for himself, and and also the idea that like. The Char persona is no longer his, and the color is no longer his, and the Stahl Helm is no longer his. Uh, so, it, like, there's there's something there that like the Sazabi being red makes sense rather than than pink makes sense too. Yeah. Well, and when he chooses his own clothing, you know, not just the suit, but for instance, his dressing gown. Um, he actually has two different dressing gowns. I was going to bring this, this up next. Yeah. Uh, in this in this movie. Yeah. You get two sexy robes. <laughs> but the one he uses for company when he's trying to convey sharness to somebody. So in his first sort of private talk with Quest after he picks her up, mm-hmm. he wears a red dressing gown. But when he's just relaxing casually with Nanai, when he's mm. relatively unguarded, mm-hmm. he's wearing a white one. And she's wearing red. Mm. Yeah, and I think it, that was notable to me because in that scene, it's sort of, again when he is at some of his most unguarded and that is also mm. the scene which shows us that flashback uh, to first Gundam Shar um, and that flashback because it's a flashback from Shar's point of view so in the flashback we see him and we see him unmasked we see him beneath the mask in his memories and then the flashback goes on they sort of superimpose the mask over him and stuff and then when it is time for us to see him reacting to Lala's death in the flashback the mask fades away again and it shows us specifically mm. Shar underneath the mask in that flashback mm-hmm. yeah that is a scene where he just seems kind of broken because it contrasts for like a few scenes later when he puts back the the red Shar costume on and he is just standing so upright. He is so supported by that garment and that persona, but like out of it, he's just sad, pining after Amuro. <laughs> that is a scene where Nanai is checking with him to make sure he really wants to do this monumentally evil thing. Mm-hmm. So she is <laughs> questioning the plan. She's also pointing out to him that she thinks he and Amaro are very similar. And while she doesn't state this explicitly, when he points out that they're so similar they were bound to hate each other, she counters with hate and love being two sides of the same coin. Yep. So she, within the story, as a character, mm-hmm. also thinks that Shar is in love with Amaro. <laughs> <sighs> That's not just a fan creation. <laughs> that mm-hmm. is a, a thing within the mm. text itself. It's the thesis of the movie. And all of this in the context of a, a scene that also implies by the fact that they're both in robes that they have an intimate sexual relationship. Yeah. Uh, I know we're mostly talking about costumes and, and masks and stuff, but like that's one of the scenes that sells to me that Char is just disingenuous through this movie. Or like his intentions are are hidden from pretty much everyone and you have to like be closely reading to see what the human underneath all of these personas is actually trying to achieve and what 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 he wants and it's just the way that he handles nanai and like almost literally asks her what do you want my answer to be when she asks i think about quests and she's like this he's like well then that it's just like oh my god you're the worst yeah and we see here that nanai is one of the few people who knows that char is lying to everybody Mm. you know after he leaves throws the glass in frustration at dealing with this guy Mm. 
Me too. I love it. She's in a difficult situation, of course, because she has really attached herself to him and her future really depends on what he does at this point. She's not at liberty to just be like, well, this guy is awful, so I'm going to leave. I'm glad we're talking about Nanai because one of the notes I have underneath all of my Shar and Amaro notes is that their primary relationships with women also reflect those things that we've already noted about their own costuming and what that says about their characters. Hmm. Nanai, in her tight pencil skirt and extremely fitted uniform jacket hmm. versus Chan in her bomber jacket with her short hair and skirt and boots. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the extremely different vibes from these two women as well, and even their positions within the organization that Chan is an engineer, but she's not in the management of all of this, whereas Nanai is the director of the new type laboratories and also holds these other important mm. positions within Neo-Zeon. Mm. In a way, when you focus on their relationships with the two women, you can see one of the many ways in which they have each become their father. Amaro is a fighter pilot. I mean, he's a mobile suit ace, but he spends a whole lot of time designing mobile suits and working on the tech and testing things. And it's clear that mm. that is where his heart lies, because after all, that is where his lover like, that's what she does. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that they bond over. Whereas for Shar, not only has he taken on his father's, like, political legacy as the figurehead of the Spacenoid rights movement, but he has also taken on his father's obsession with new types and creating them, mm. which is why Nanai is the head of the new type lab. I would also extend this to Shar's relationship to Quest. The Alpha Aziaru shows up without much explanation, but giant mobile armor that like is deeply reminiscent of the Xeong, and then he bequeaths it to slash forces it upon the impressionable young new type who he's brought along with him. And you know, the, the thing that's notable for me about the Xeong and the Alpha Aziaru is primarily like it's the mouth and the manipulators. Um and I'm gonna, you know, jump back into my wheelhouse right here. The mask of the Xiong and the mask of the Alpha Aziaru are like, they have a permanently screaming mouth. Mm. When Char picks up the Xiong back then, this is sort of him uh, bowing his head to sort of the expectations of Char Asnable, the soldier of Xion, rather than Char Asnable, the secret identity of Castel Rem Daikun, who's seeking revenge on the Zabi family, right? Because like he's got this weird shift of of allegiances and priorities at the very end of, of Mobile Suit Gundam. Mm -hmm. But like it's him relinquishing control over his actions and destiny because the Xion is very tragic as a mask because it has nothing but the mournful face and it does not have hands. It has gun hands, right? So it can't do anything but the one thing. And it feels very much like once you get in this thing, you can only kill. Mm. Whereas when you get in a Gelgoog, you're probably going to kill because it's a mobile suit. Let's not kid ourselves. <laughs> but it has hands and it can protect um, Lala in Texas Colony. And then he sort of takes the Xiong successor and like forces this upon New Type and like basically becomes not his father in this case, but a father like figure of the Principality of Xeon. Um, and and forces this war machine that has no humanity upon his new type of protege. And that sort of that thing of Char makes Quest into a smaller version of himself is very much reflected in her costuming because after she meets Char, she is dressed like a smaller version of him pretty much the whole time. Oh my god! 
Yeah, and like every every time they're together, she wears an identical uniform to him when they're on the train. Her uh, pilot suit is identical to his, except for the color. Mm-hmm. It's solid. I have a theory around Quest's costuming, which she has more costume changes than anyone else in this whole movie. Yeah. <laughs> and her hair changes pretty significantly at several points, which is unusual. Yeah. And what I think it is, is that of all the characters, she has the least idea of who she is. Mm. And so at any given point, her clothing is a reflection of whoever she's allied with at any particular moment. Mm. So, you know, with the hippies, she's wearing short shorts and a fringed vest and a shirt with laces on the front. When she's traveling with her dad, it's this very buttoned up, covered up outfit, big coat, gloves. And as much as she despises Kathy, her father's mistress, their outfits are quite uh, similar in those scene that they share together. They both have the big coats. It, they're very drapey. They're both <laughs> wearing sort of pastel colors. When she does the simulation, she's wearing a khaki jumpsuit with a little coat thing over it. When she calls Hathaway to go on a date, she's wearing a pink nightie that's exactly the same shade of pink as his shirt. Mm. Mm-hmm. In the Jeep, actually on the date, at the moment she meets Char, what is she wearing? She's wearing black and white, <laughs> which is exactly how Char thinks, and also the same color as the swans. And we know that she also thinks in very binary terms. Once she is with the Neo Zeons uh, and she's doing the funnel test, she already has hair the same color as for Murasame's hair, but during the funnel test, she's also wearing a light purple sort of drapey t-shirt that's very reminiscent of Four's big light purple Mm. drapey shirt that she wore that's so iconic. That's fascinating. I mean, it just all, you know, as a new type, she has a frequency and she tunes into whatever frequencies are surrounding her and mirrors them. And, you know, her whole character of going to the battlefield, getting caught up in that bloodlust, coming into contact with Char, starting to orbit around him immediately, just like becoming drawn in by anything and everything. She's such an important character in the movie for like giving us that that sounding board of how much gravity surrounds no uh, gravity is the wrong word choice in the context of Gundam but like is it? I mean maybe it's not actually. (laughs) I think it's entirely correct. Uh, But how much gravity surrounds Char and and the the like the cult of personality or the mythology and also just the human beings like personal gravity. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that you also say that Quest is the person who doesn't know who she is and like sort of gets roped into this because I think also like at the very end of Mobile Suit Gundam, Char is having that moment of identity crisis when he's given the Zeong. He's like, oh, well, I've done my thing. I guess I'm going to do this now. Okay. And so there's that moment of identity shift or waiver or or less concreteness. There's one moment where Quest's clothes are more similar to Gune's. Mm. In the midst of all of her Char emulation, when she's on the bridge and she's not supposed to be and she gets in that confrontation with Nanai, she's wearing a lot of neutral colors and her coat has like a a black short cape kind of thing over the top of it. It's like brown, but there's some part of it around the chest and shoulders that's black, which is very similar to Gune's brown jacket with the black yoke that he wears when he's in his like weird breeches and old timey <laughs> his old timey pilot, pilot suit ha- outfit yeah the hobby Isaac scene <laughs> the best the suit. best scene best mobile suit and not just the coat but quest is wearing underneath that like a white dress mm. which is very similar to the white shirt that gune was wearing mm. under his 
So he may have started to win her over and then it didn't quite take. Yeah. So Sean, you've drawn a line from Quest to Shar in the Xiong, but I think in many ways, it's more natural to connect Quest to Lala. Of course, there's a lot in the narrative about this. Sharp looks at her doing new type stuff and says, oh, she's just like her. And he almost certainly means Lala. You know, there's a ton of it. But there's also some in the costuming. Mm. And this, I think, takes us back to that scene with uh, the swans and the ducks, Amuro and Shar, Quest and Hathaway, a horse, a jeep, some judo. Good scene all around. <laughs> As we pointed out earlier, Quest's outfit in this scene is starkly black and white. This, of course, evokes her extremely binary thinking throughout the movie and Char's similar thinking. But within this scene in particular, it also makes her resemble the swans that they're chasing, Mm. who are also pure black and white. And that pureness, perhaps should make us think of the conversation between space swan Lala and Amaro earlier on in the movie when she called Char pure. <sighs> what a flummoxing line. Yeah. I, I actually didn't find it so flummoxing, mostly because I think that she's referring to Char's tendency to look for extreme but simple solutions to problems <laughs> and his unwillingness to sort of deal with the gray space like things are good or bad necessary or unnecessary and we often think of pure as being you know sort of good clean true but purity is a concept that frequently lies at the heart of a lot of fascist thinking mm. um you know pure blood pure unmixed culture You know, those are not positive ideas. Mm -hmm. The word that Lala uses in the Japanese is junsui, which can be translated as pure or true or unmixed. And in the English dub, they actually translate it as pure of heart, which I just think that's overreading the line in the Japanese. Mm. In particular, because later Mirai uses the exact same term, but says that Shar is too pure. He's too much of a perfectionist. Mm. She's also saying Junsui. Yeah, she's Junsui Sugiru. Mm. And if you look up Junsui in an English to Japanese dictionary, you get those sort of basic pure, true, genuine uh, meanings. But if you look it up in a Japanese to Japanese dictionary, there are some other meanings as well, one of which I think is especially useful here. And that's that Junsui can be used to refer to like purely theoretical thinking. Huh. Right. Pure reason, like thinking without consideration for the reality of the situation. That's sure. It makes so much more sense in the context of, again, him and Amaro's very physical argument Mm. that they have. And an argument that is then recalled later in the movie when they're fighting within Axis and arguing about uh, Char's sort of high-minded ideals and then the messy realities of revolution. Yeah. In addition to the color, the other thing that struck me about Quest's black and white outfit is it is her most childish, her most girlish outfit with the ruffles and bows and the little skirt and the Mary Janes and the knee socks. <laughs> Two separate bows, one of black and one of white. <laughs> and those ruffles are on the shoulders, mimicking the shoulder caps of the normal suit that she will later be wearing. Mm. Mm. But Tom and I have commented to each other and 
in other discussions we've had about this movie <laughs> that in a lot of ways, Char seems trapped in adolescence or trapped in childhood, that a lot of things about his thinking are the way an adolescent thinks of things and he doesn't seem to have grown beyond that. Mm -hmm. And that some of his appeal to Quest is because he thinks of things in that same black and white way that she does. That's part of why she's so drawn to him. Uh, so she gets to see like a childish person in power who hasn't compromised on the ideals because he hasn't had to. That's dark and twisty and I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I especially get this sense from those scenes where they're wearing identical clothing and sitting next to each other. Like in the limousine after the famous train scene, you know, they're both sitting on these big leather chairs, identically dressed, mm. two kids, two teenagers, basically mentally uh, hanging out together. I was commenting to, to Sarah, like, while we were on break for a quick second, that this is a scene that I wanted to talk about specifically because of like Char's aspect in this scene and the way it shifts moment to moment and the fact that he's holding the sunglasses that he was wearing during the Char's Fighting for Our Prayers song on the train. Mm -hmm. Um and like I don't know if this supports or 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 is a counter argument to the like two teenagers sitting and talking to each other, and it might be a supportive argument, actually, considering the way the teenagers often try to mirror what they think others want from them. Um, you know, Shar's got the sunglasses in hand, but his face is entirely impassive when they're driving away. Um, like he's just shut off, and like Quest is talking, and like starts trying to engage him, and then there's the moment where he switches the mask back on and like switches back to the charming face that he gave her. And again, I was going frame by frame through the, like the horse riding uh, a lapel grab tussle sequence too. The minute he realizes that he's not going to be shot because she's grabbed the gun. He turns his face to her and goes from apprehension to the charming blonde man smile. Um, and you can see her respond to it. Like mm -hmm. going frame by frame through this movie and through these TV shows is really just, if you've got time to do it, do it because it's beautiful that's such an affecting moment oh because God. it's shot from her perspective yeah it's like we as the audience are holding the gun and Shar is turning to look at us and it's turns amazing. that that charming smile onto us i'm wondering if the part of the reason that Shar is so unmasked in this movie is because he's realized that his face is more an effective manipulator unmasked than with mask because he, you know, he uses himself to great effect throughout this whole movie. Yeah. He also is very deliberate about when and how he looks Quest in the face. Because it's not all the time. That first sort of interview they have together, he's looking out a window for most of that conversation. He's not looking at her. Yeah. Most of the conversation in the car, she is turned to him, but he is looking off ahead. Yeah. Until he turns the charm on her. He does do this to other people, but not to the same extreme extent. It feels a lot like an emotionally manipulative relationship, right? Like mm -hmm. where he's rationing the charm. Oh, it is. You know, like he's holding the sunglasses in that limousine scene and he's just like, I don't even know that he's staring off ahead. Yeah. He's just not on. He is disappeared. Like he is not, he's barely inhabiting that body for that moment while Quest is trying to talk to him in the limousine, but he's holding the sunglasses there, right? And like, Tom, you've said in, in conversations that we've had in the past, right? That like the sunglasses sometimes seem to like, flag when we're actually seeing Shar at his most honest and unmasked. Mm -hmm. um, having taken the mask off is a manipulative tool in and of itself because everyone's like, oh, he's honest now, right? Like, 
he then turns the charm on and he goes from zero to 60. And like the fact that he's holding the sunglasses there, as he turns and faces Quest and turns the charm on, the sunglasses drop closer to the bottom of the frame. Yeah. It's very much like teenagers showing each other what they want to see. But also I think there's conscious manipulation happening as well. And that's the part that feels unteenage like Yeah. Mm-hmm. The train scene is the scene in this movie that sticks in my head the most. There's flashy mechs. The whole axis thing is wild. There's lots of cool stuff. The, the scene with the horses is amazing. But the train scene just like lodged itself in my head. All the people on the train look like Faded Splendor. So it looks like a shot out of the Warriors when they're on the subway first thing in the morning. Or it looks like the Babushki and like um, Dyadushki lining up for bread than photos that you would see in all the, the propaganda about the Soviet Union and how terrible it was. People wearing their nicest clothes, but that are like the old man is wearing this purple suit that's got the wrinkled shirt. Everyone's got bags under their eyes. And then you've got uh, Gyune sharon quest so incongruous and like the old people in these shots look so nice and everyone's so happy and i just want to give them all hugs and tell them you need to find better heroes yeah yeah find better heroes might as well be the tagline for gundam (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think gundam wants us to be deeply suspicious of anyone who casts themselves as our savior this scene is that in a nutshell because like you've got all these people who are like wearing faded Sunday best or just are tired and overworked at the end of a long day and then you've got these three people in like these beautiful leather suits and they get off and the station where they got off has like these beautiful ivy covered walls and I'm pretty sure the sign says Beverly Hills I'm like what the frack man it's just like and then they go get in a limousine after having taken this like photo op train ride yeah and the limousine takes them to a gated mansion yes yeah And looking at the people in the subway car, my initial thought was like, is this supposed to be New York Mm. in the 1980s? The broad mixture of um, ages, races, clearly a different like class mixture based on the clothing. I mean, I bring this up every time there's a crowd scene. The gender balance is terrible. Mm. Um, The gender balance (laughs) is comparatively good for this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, but when we get to the scene that is focused on Char and Gune and Quest surrounded, it's all men. We see like two other women on this subway train. Anyway, but it is a more diverse crowd than we get in almost any other scene. A lot of the outfits in the movie are very of another time. The Xeon uniforms especially harken back to the past. Mm. The Mm. Federation uniforms harken towards the future, towards the space age sci-fi future. Whereas the outfits on the train really do look like you could have walked onto any subway car uh, in New York and encountered people dressed exactly like that. This Mm -hmm. is why, yeah, this is where my brain goes like, ah, yeah, it's the Warriors because that's my primary exposure to subway cars in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, it's just like as a scene, it's sort of like we are going to represent how Shar is supported by the common people and these are the common people we have chosen to draw. I do want to talk about sunglasses here. (laughs) In this instance, and then also the horses scene where, you know, Tom, you said that having the sunglasses on kind of in the inverse of what it has been before and what you might expect, having the sunglasses on kind of signifies to us that maybe Shar is being more honest than usual. Um, and I think that only works because of how Quattro Pagina used sunglasses in almost the opposite way. And of course, how we think of sunglasses generally. So I kind of want to go into a little bit of the history of sunglasses and like cultural meaning. Please do. Just a quick side note. Shar in First Gundam uses sunglasses to reveal more of his, his actual self than he does with the Stahlhelm too. 
But yeah. I'm trying to think of incidents in First Gundam apart from the sad pub scene that he was wearing sunglasses. I think, I think that's, that's the, the only, only one. one. But it's so striking. Yeah. Yeah. God, I love that scene. Um, so in chat, I linked a podcast episode, mm-hmm. um, which is a appearance on Dress the History of Fashion by Vanessa Bryan, who is the author of Cool Shids, A History of Sunglasses. And we sort of regurgitating quite a lot of this interview and this book, which I own and have read several times because I'm very interested in sunglasses, mainly because of Quattro Magina. So if you want a lot more information about the history of sunglasses, go listen to this podcast or get the book Cool Shades because extremely interesting stuff. We'll include links both to the podcast and to the book in the show notes. So be sure to check those out. Mm -hmm. So sunglasses have like so many meanings. The book Cool Shades has like six or seven different chapters all about a different central meaning of sunglasses. But the ones I want to focus on for Char are the sort of archetype of the like sportsman, the daredevil, the archetype especially of the celebrity, archetype of maybe the liar, and also the archetype of the cyborg. Mm. Especially in context of first Gundam and his mask, because sun- okay, sunglasses make you look really weird. Earlier in our discussion, Sean mentioned the Hyakushiki's weird eye plate Mm -hmm. and how it doesn't look like an eye. And that's, of course, because it isn't an eye. Mm, It's the sunglasses. It's the sunglasses. It's Quattro's sunglasses. And the the creepiness of that eye shows up a bunch of times in the show. Mm -hmm. You know, there's like sort of streaks of light that go across it sometimes. And sometimes there's blinking green lights that pop up all over it. So the moment you said sunglasses convey the archetype of the cyborg, the first thing I thought of was the Hyakushiki. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, there's that archetype of, of like like hackers, like very 90s kind of wearing sunglasses <laughs> and it's the Matrix kind of archetype that like that sunglasses have that meaning. They may not have quite had that much of that meaning in 1980. Quick, when was this film released? 88. 88. But you know, it's still very slightly dehumanizing for oneself, uh, which is certainly relevant to Shar. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah like the one last one was liar um again like it's a fairly common usage of film and movies you put on sunglasses it means you have something to hide mm. and it's, that's that's kind of the the central use and the motif of sunglasses especially in terms of char because if you're putting something over your eyes you're hiding them you are therefore withholding a part of yourself from the world you're putting a barrier between the world and yourself and you can see through it but people can't see you I mean, people can see you, but not all of you. So there's just, there is something undisclosed there. I mean, come back to that because that's literally the entire discussion about Char. Yeah. I think it's interesting you mentioned these different archetypes because, for instance, when Char is on the train in Sweetwater and he's wearing the sunglasses, the people around him are meant to see the celebrity. Yeah. But we as the audience are meant to see the liar. Yeah. 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 Totally. Um, God, he he looks so uncomfortable in that train scene. It's honestly really funny. Um, <laughs> doesn't doesn't he just look so grateful to receive that rose? I mean, I've I've never seen a man look so excited to have a bunch of people singing at him. <laughs> oh, it's like when you go to a restaurant for your birthday and then everyone starts singing and you just kind of have to sit there. It's so uncomfortable. Honestly, it would be a lot more comfortable if you were wearing sunglasses. Yeah. Which brings us to the archetype of the celebrity or the star. 
And this is also relevant to the archetype of the daredevil or, or the sportsman because sunglasses were initially marketed as things you wear when you're going really fast. That's that, that's not relevant to Charlotte. Um, <laughs> like they first marketed sunglasses as things you would wear like on the train to protect your face from like the wind rushing past. Mm. It was like they sunglasses come from like driving goggles, from pilot goggles, all that sort of thing. And then these like driving railway kind of goggles and glasses got turned into glasses you would wear outdoors for when you were doing sports. And so the 1930s sort of had that rise of sports culture, like sports became a thing that you did to be healthy, which they kind of really Mm. weren't before. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously people who want to be healthy and beautiful are celebrities. So they're wearing sunglasses when they're doing these and they come to be associated with celebrities in that fashion. And also, of course, because films are becoming a thing with mm. film stars in them um and when you when they go out in public again the paparazzi in like the 1930s had like these very ignitious ignitious well like a flashbulb camera yeah. is very very bright but yeah like flashbulbs were like so bright and like literally the sunglasses were kind of necessary to protect <laughs> them from this kind of thing but it, it developed into just such an association with celebrity culture in that stars could wear them to go out to just like feel better. Mm. Um, I think the book kind of mentions that like Jackie Onassis became so known for going out in sunglasses that in order to not actually be recognized when she was out, she would not wear her sunglasses. (laughs) (laughs) You mention the sunglasses having their origin in like sports goggles, driving goggles, goggles for pilots. When Gune shows up in his like 1930s-esque breeches outfit, He's wearing like a leather pilot's cap, but he's also wearing tinted goggles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like early 1930s Ray-Bans advertising had like a lot to do. Like literally they invented the style and called them aviators. Like, you know, pilots flying, they wear the big goggles. Like sunglasses aren't going to be enough to protect your eyes at however many miles in the air you are. But the style of the aviator sunglasses is modeled after those goggles. And like they were just so marketed towards men who wanted to feel cool like fighter pilots because like in between the wars and during the wars like a fighter pilot was like the coolest thing you could be like it was the most dangerous thing that a human could possibly do and this has um actually i've got a question for the class like what does the word cool mean like what what does cool mean what is cool do you mean like in the 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 like fly cool or like cool as a cucumber cool or all the gray area in between both everything like there is it's such a weird concept (laughs) (laughs) i feel like the only thing i can think of that sums it up is that it is aspirational it is a thing everybody wants to be (laughs) Mm -hmm. and there's an element of like imperturbability of untouchability to it Mm. when you're doing sport when you're doing uh barrel rolls when you're doing sick flips or the sorts of things that obviously you're going to be wearing sunglasses and doing this and that's what cool means it's like it suggests a level of like emotional detachment and like not reacting to things because like you're completely focused on this thing Mm. calm under pressure yeah Mm. yeah like being under pressure like i theorize and i well the book sort of theorizes and i would tend to agree that like this is kind of the roots of our modern conceptions of coolness and this hmm. is where they come from. Um, certainly in high sunglasses represent those things. Yeah. And it's just still all tied to there is a level of yourself that you are not showing, which in this case is your emotions. The aloofness, yeah. 
In the case of the celebrity, it the sunglasses form a sort of a barrier that creates resistance to being perceived, mm. which is that much more helpful when everyone is trying to perceive you at all times. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's Char's situation. You know, his discomfort on the train comes from all of these people looking at him. And this is another scene where we get a first-person perspective shot, because when everyone in the train car turns mm -hmm. to look at Char, they're turning to look at the camera. Mm -hmm. And for a moment, yeah. we feel what it is to have all of these people staring at you and expecting something from you. And the sunglasses are the, the shield for him. Mm. As a prop, the sunglasses communicate to us, the viewers, that he is trying to hide or find some privacy, right? But there's already like two audiences for these sunglasses at that point. There's the people that Char is trying to find distance or privacy from or to deceive, which are the other characters within the scene. And then there's us, the audience, watching the movie. The sunglasses reveal to us that the character wearing the sunglasses is trying to deceive or is trying to find privacy, which is an emotional revelation or, or a plot revelation to us as an audience of the movie uh, that is not available to the audience of the action who are within the scene. Hmm. It's one of the ways that masks can be like double meaning and like sunglasses can have that double meaning because like sunglasses in the real world are pretty much just like the first level of, of thing of like, I want privacy, I want to deceive, I want to do these things. But the minute you turn them into a prop in a movie or you turn them into a mask in a movie, they start revealing things to the real world audience that are not revealed, that are in fact obfuscated from the the people within the scene. I think that was like the whole focus of Quattro's sunglasses in Zeta. Um, because it has so many moments where like Quadra has the sunglasses on, off, like he takes them off when he's like, Camille, have you ever heard of Shar Aznable? And you're like, oh, I, I, see what you, I see what you're doing there, bro. And like, you know, Camille punches them off. I mean, Amaro punches them off in this movie. And just like a whole, you know, Dakar, he takes his sunglasses off. Like, you know, every time Quattro would like either put on or take off his sunglasses in Zeta, I'm like on the edge of my seat. I'm doing the Leonardo mm. DiCaprio point at the screen. I'm like hooting <laughs> and hollering. Um, it's just like, that's when you know that like, it's really going down. Yeah. They just allow the animators to like direct the viewer's attention to be like, come on, see this guy? See what he's doing? That's so good. Which actually, uh, back to the sunglasses in CCA in the, the horse scene, the lapels, the boys are fighting scene. Part of me thinks that like Char only has the sunglasses on so that Amaru can then punch them off. <laughs> I mean, if you subscribe to the theory that everything Char is doing in this movie is so that he can have one last big punch up with Amaro, then, well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I also think that having said that sunglasses represent that you have something to hide, the way that sunglasses allow you to withhold some of yourself also allow you to be honest with yourself. Like, it means that in this scene, Shar is not having to mask his face because his sunglasses are doing that for him. Yeah. Which means that when he's wearing the sunglasses, he's not physically, like, personally masking and he can be honest with Amro. Which is why I listen to, like, what he's saying in that scene and it seems like he believes it. I don't know. Well, and this immediately follows the famous line. Oh, the famous line. When he puts on the sunglasses and he says, I'm doing something extremely wicked. Feel my presence. If you know what I mean. <laughs> but that's one of only two instances in the movie when Char's inward thoughts are made audible. The other one being his flashback to Lala's death in First Gundam. Hmm. Mm. 
There's also when he's in the ejected cockpit as Amaro slams it into the side of access, like he is verbalizing his internal thoughts, but it is for no audience other than himself. Is it is it for no audience or is it for Amaro? I, I thought he was talking to Amaro. Uh, I don't think he's talking to Amaro. It's the one moment where I think he's actually just lost control of all of the masks and is just frothing for a moment. Where he's crying? Yeah. The way he phrases it, unlike various other points in that fight, it doesn't feel as though it's addressed at Amaro. It's more like, doesn't he understand? He's more talking about Amaro than to him. That's the one moment where I think we see a lot of honesty in Char where the sunglasses aren't anywhere in sight because it doesn't make sense for the sunglasses to be anywhere in sight. But on the other hand, he has just lost the entire mask of the Sazabi in that moment, right? So like he Mm -hmm. is somewhat unmasked there. Way back in First Gundam, when we were talking about the Ziong, we talked about how the transfer of the cockpit from the stomach, from the midsection, from the gut to the head is about showing the distinction between sort of thinking and feeling, between the um, the conscious, rational, intellectual mind and the, the subconscious. And that's the conflict mm. that is playing out between the new, where Amuro is again in the chest, in the instinct, versus Shar, who's entirely intellectual, entirely conceptual, up in the head. And when the Sazabi is destroyed, all that's left is the brain. All that's left is the sphere of conscious thought. Mm. It, it does like make that scene feel like a final unmasking. You know, when you come to the final revelation of the movie, which was that Char just wanted a mummy GF the whole time, it makes Char feel like a very like hollow character. Like it's masks all the way down, and when you strip the final mask away, all there was was the desire for a mummy the whole time. Mm-hmm. That goes back to what Nina said earlier about Char really feeling adolescent, childish, stuck in in a state of arrested development. Mm. Because when you take away the giant body of the Ziong and you take away all the masks and you remove all the outfits and the uniforms, what you have at the end is a, a kid who wants his mommy. Yeah. And also it really makes the, oh God, she wanted a father line about Quest make so much more sense too. If like, if he's locked in the, in the worldview and paradigm of, of a teenager, mm who's had a huge amount of responsibility shoved upon him and that he's assumed and abused, but still a teenager. Of course you can't comprehend that someone is looking for a parent when what you think everyone wants is sex. Hmm. One of the things that stood out to me about Char, he doesn't really understand emotions. When he's talking about Lala or remembering Lala, he thinks that he wanted her to tell him what he was feeling. Hmm. His idea of a mother figure is someone to teach him what feelings are and what they mean. He's become very adept at manipulating other people's feelings. He's become very good at figuring out what it is people want from him and giving them that, but he doesn't understand any of the underlying emotions or motivations. Mm. So he knows Quest wants to feel special. She wants to feel like she's the most important person to him and she wants to feel protected and she wants attention and he can identify that and give her those things, but he can't understand, as Amaro can, that, oh, that's because she wants someone to kind of be a father figure to her. Yeah. We've talked a lot about Char, uh, as I sort of predicted we would, and quite a bit about Quest as well. Um, I would like to take a little bit of time now and talk about the costuming for some of the background characters Mm -hmm. and to explore what it can teach us about the world. And this starts off really quite powerfully and evocatively with the various Federation officials at Adenauer Pariah's giant colonial mansion in or near Lhasa. 
Because you've got Pariah himself, who's wearing like a linen suit, three piece with a matching hat Mm. and could not more perfectly embody the conception of the colonial official. (laughs) What, what? (laughs) And then you've got the people who work under him, the Manhunter police officers uh, and the, I guess, general probably wearing the all white uniform who are both distinctly more brown than he is. Yup. Yeah. I was also particularly struck by the group of hippies whose clothing is very evocative. We look at them and we know that they're hippies. The men have long hair and kind of scruffy facial hair, the jewelry, the fringe. (laughs) They are also all pretty white, although in Gundam, that doesn't always mean what you think it means, but (laughs) Yeah. 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 They don't look like locals. Yeah. And then Kathy, while she only has a brief appearance in the movie, is dressed quite conservatively. We are told in the text that she is not Adenauer's wife. It's implied that she is his mistress. And yet she's clearly like... It's so different from how, say, Margarita is portrayed in Zeta, Mm -hmm. where we don't even see her full face, but it's like bubblegum pink curly hair and her naked and wrapped in a bed sheet (laughs) versus the suit and coat and hair up in some kind of a bun updo and uh, generally more sort of public facing. I mean, she's quite just, she's quite first lady on it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's funny how similar the high officials on both sides look. Mm. Men in suits. Yeah, tracing Adenauer through from Lhasa up until he gets to his meeting in Londinian with all the Xeon officials who, again, uh, on both sides, it is a smattering of guys in suits and some high-ranking military officials who are very old, often with kind of funny-looking faces or facial hair choices. (laughs) And yeah, both sides are very similar. Yeah. Yeah. This scene, actually, the the meeting in Londonian, um, the surroundings are so opulent, so like palatial, fancy, fancy mansion, fancy palace. Uh, you know the kind of places where meetings like this take place. Mm-hmm. You know they all look like they fit in here. And actually, whenever you earlier pointed out uh, Yune's silly little uh, aviator outfit with the breeches and the, the, the skull cap and the goggles. That is like such an antiquated uh, piloting outfit, but mm. it makes sense in the context of this like fancy mansion, parkland kind of estate mm-hmm. um, that they are having this meeting in. And it really comes to make sense in that context. Whereas it's an absolutely ludicrous, the most ludicrous thing we've seen anyone pilot a mobile suit in. They even draw attention to the fact that it's silly within the show. I think somebody on their shuttle comments on his getup and he says, well, it's part of the job. Yeah. And like that, that's sort of like dressed up you know, now outdated war machine that is now being kept up as sort of like this showpiece antique that people take out on the weekends is not like that's a thing that has happened with World War One and World War Two planes. Like people with too much money and time on their hands would absolutely buy those surplus and then maintain them as a hobby, mm-hmm. um, and then put on the ridiculous aviator outfit with the scarf and goggles and everything. <laughs> For anyone who's not familiar with it, the machine that Gune pilots—that's all done up in bright blue and white and red—that's <laughs> uh, the what's called a hobby hijack, which means it's a hijack like from Zeta, but it's been turned to civilian recreation use. 
I love it so much. It's a trip seeing it because the colors are colors I associate with the Gundam, Mm -hmm. the primary colors and white. But a little washed out, sort of yeah. pastel-y, and not a Gundam. <laughs> the Hobby Hijack looks like it's out of a circus, because it's just so wild-looking. Mm-hmm. I also noticed in the scenes that Amaro shares with the Anaheim engineer that Amaro's uniform and the clothing worn by the Anaheim engineers are very similar. <laughs> Pretty much just different colors and some different accessories, but that they're there is still this strong connection uh, between Anaheim operating almost as like an extra national entity and the Federation government. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Londo Bell's uniforms in general are very utilitarian. They have a kind of space age industrial feel to them, whereas the Xeon uniforms are much more showy and are mm. you know existing in the the tradition of Xeon's very ornate uniforms even if these are somewhat more restrained by comparison. Yeah, it's e- you know, even though Neo Zeon has like toned itself down from 0079, you know, even from Zeta and stuff, it is still comparatively extravagant. All their uniforms have wide lapels for grabbing and for putting pins on. And they're inventing new iconography, right? Like the this symbol that's on the, the chest of all of these sashes, I think that's new. I don't remember that from First Gundam. Like when I'm looking at it right now, it looks sort of like an A with a V over it, but I'm assuming there's an, it's meant to be an eagle. Yeah. Gune's got it on his black jacket um, earlier on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Nanai wears one. Yeah, everybody has them basically. They've kept the little, the collar wings, but that's yeah. pretty much it. You know, and some other, like, little bits and details, yeah. but, like, the only sort of constant thread between Xeon and Neo-Zeon is that, that collar wing. Well, the, the gold design that Char has on his chest is different from the ones that the Xeon soldiers wore in prior shows, but it, it does come out of that same tradition. It, it is clearly an evolution from those earlier designs. Yeah, yeah it kind of looks like it's trying to be, like, a copyright-free version of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The other icon that is new and that like has always flummoxed me and I've never fully understood it and it might just be mechanical designer needed something cool to slap on the Sazabi's hip, but is that treble clef? Oh, um, so I'm pretty convinced that is a stylized C and D for Kasval Daikun. Uh... I also thought it was a treble clef. Yeah, because the C curves back at the top. I could see Kasval Daikun. That is the most compelling explanation I've ever heard. Oh, which reframes the Sazabi in an interesting way. I like that. Speaking of uh, various uniforms, I love that we continue something that came up in, I think, a smaller way in previous series, but we learn a lot about Bright's state of mind and his attitude toward who he's speaking to by whether or not his collar is buttoned. It's so good. Yeah, the part whenever, like, an hour comes onto the <laughs> ship and he's like, whoop, I gotta button my collar. But then later when... Adenauer has sold access to Neo Zeon. He does not button his collar to talk to Adenauer. I no longer respect you. But he does button his collar when he talks to Cameron Bloom. And Cameron is telling him about what happened. Mm. It's uh, this wonderful little indicator of his state of mind at any given time. Char's counterattack does a neat little inversion of the standard Gundam trope, which is that Typically, especially going back to Amuro in First Gundam, the son inherits the mobile suit of the father. Amuro's dad built the Gundam, Mm -hmm. Camille's dad built the Mark II. Mm. 
But if you notice, in Char's counterattack, when the crew from the Rock Island goes into Axis to blow up the old mining tunnels, Bright takes the little mobile worker that Hathaway brought onto the Rock Island. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. It's a nice little touch. Oh, I didn't notice that. I want to go back a little bit before that to when they're both outlining their plans, because there's a, a sequence here where Char gives his big speech, and then Amro and uh, Bright and one other officer get up in front of all the Londo Bell guys, and they explain what they're going to have to do now that their first attempt to destroy Axis has failed. And in each of these scenes, we get a pan across the audience, and the Neo-Zeon folks are all wearing identical armored normal suits. Mm-hmm. They're all men. They look to be about approximately the same age. Their outfits are identical, and they're all pumping their fists in the air triumphantly in the same fashion. Mm. They probably gathered together a squadron or a platoon or whatever the appropriate unit of military measurement is of veterans from the One Year War and got them together for the film opportunity. Mm. <laughs> It honestly is what it looks like to me, right? Because I'm like... Yeah, it's so staged. They're old enough to be veterans of the one-year war. And uh, why are they all here front and center? Well, they clearly staged it to get the photo op. Mm -hmm. It really does speak to just the performativity of everything surrounding Char. Yeah. You know, in that speech, speaking of the performativity of it, the, the falseness of it, you can see him standing at the podium, right? And the podium he's standing at has an emblem on it. It has a a big um, golden eagle picked out. But in the film version, they've edited out the golden eagle and replaced it with Char's symbol. What? Oh yeah, that is what it is in the sort of the projection that they're showing everyone. Oh my God. Yeah, it's, it's all about Char. And artifice and illusion and deception. You know, I keep thinking about this like while we've been talking like this whole episode because like in my mind, in my head, Char died in First Gundam whenever Char took his mask off. Like that was the death mm. of Char. That was the moment that Char ceased to exist and that the person piloting Char's body went and did direct action, shot Kasila's head off, stuff like that. But like the death of Shar happened before that and like everything in this movie is sort of necromancy. They're just like yeah. still piloting that ghost. That implies that the elusive Kasval Rem Daikun is actually the person piloting Shar at this point. I mean, if you tie together everything we've talked about today, that arrested development, that childish attitude, I mean, Kasval essentially stopped developing when the Shar persona was created. So he would have stopped developing as a child. Yeah. And then the action of killing Cassilia at the end of First Gundam, that was Kasval's goal all along. Mm. The Shar persona was just the mask he wore to get close to her. Yeah. And of course, the, the CD mark on the Sazabi, if that is indeed what it is. Yeah. I really like that, Rude, because it also helps me like parse the innocence and exploratory mask of the Rick Diaz and like the fact that Char is unmasked for the beginning of Zeta. Because mm. um, it's him coming back into the Earth sphere or whatever and like trying to figure out where he might fit in all of this and maybe try to do some good. And then it all goes off the rails when we get to the, the Hyakushiki and it's fine. But yeah, that's a really nice read on it. I'm wondering if, thinking of Quattro Noi and how... Um... At the start of Zeta, he's relatively unmasked. And then as Zeta continues, um, he 
gets pressured and pressured to step back into the Char persona. And when he does that, he sort of removes his sunglasses. And it's making me think that the sunglasses were the thing protecting him from being Char. Totally. Mm. Yeah, well, the sunglasses prevented him from being put in a position of power. Yeah. As long as he hung on to the mask, he could never be in charge. But then the minute he drops the mask, suddenly everyone is shoving him into this position of authority. Mm. I mean, when he identifies himself at the beginning of Zeta, he says, right now I am merely Lieutenant Quattro Bugina. And I think that merely is doing an enormous amount of work there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is a huge part of the read of Char as a tragic character, right? That he does these things and he tries to change and then he gets forced into, into circumstances that then lead him to make terrible decisions. The outfit and the mask of Char in First Gundam were like so extravagant. They were so like attention seeking. And I like I've got like a little actually factoid that I didn't mention when talking about the history of sunglasses about Regency era dandies. <laughs> this is a little bit of a tangent, but I think I think it's relevant because like in the prehistory of sunglasses, Regency era dandies, you know, like Pride and Prejudice times, um, would use a lorgnette as like an accessory. Almost in the way of, as we think of um, women using fans, like, oh, the language of fans, which is not, was never a real thing. It was a marketing strategy, invented in Victorian times. Anyway, whatever. Um, <laughs> Regency dandies would use kind of like a lorgnette, which is just like a little pair of glasses on a stick. Uh, and they'd kind of go to these parties and like wave them around to like signify to other people that like they weren't looking at them. Mm. Or, or if they were looking at them, it was just to sort of direct their gaze around the place at parties. Making the gaze an visible action is such a horrifying and delightful thing. I love this. <laughs> this act of pretending not to be looking at people was a way of calling people's attention to themselves. That's what Char's mask in First Gundam feels like. It's like, a, I am hiding my face Mm-hmm. so that people will look at me and see how cool I am and how good at piloting I am. And it's just, his mask in First Gundam is so, like, attention-seeking compared to the sunglasses and the Quattro persona and things like that. I'm gonna go check out the sunglasses book. There's an entire chapter about Andy Warhol, who was, like, famous for wearing sunglasses and stuff, but, like, it keeps saying stuff like, ah, oh, the blonde man in the sunglasses, and I'm like, oh, like, Quattro! <laughs> <laughs> stuff like that. You know, there's whole sections of the book that are just like sunglasses and the fluctuation of identity. And I'm like, you know, I'm saying that's Quattro Pagina or Shaw Asdable or maybe not Shaw Asdable. Who knows? I don't know who Shaw Asdable is anymore after this episode. That's my concluding thought, actually. <laughs> that's about right. I think that's my concluding thought, too. Yeah. He doesn't know who he is either. Oops, all masks. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, I've really enjoyed hearing everything you have to say about uh, mobile suits as masks, because like, mm. even though I like, I have an entire thesis about why the mobile suit is a body and why it should be read as clothing or as costume, and you know, I I want people to read the mobile suits as costumes. I don't like. I just have I have like robot blindness. I like can't <laughs> like. I look at. The, the Gundams, the silly little toys that y'all are building, and I just like <laughs> look away. I just, I, I, my eyes glaze over and I'm, I just start nodding and thinking about something else. But like, it's been really interesting to hear like actually what you can read when you open your eyes to the these little robots or very large robots even. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad.
And now Tom's research on Char's iconography. It comes as no surprise that Char's Neo-Zeon adopted much of the aesthetic lineage of the Principality of Zeon, and more recently, Haman's Neo-Zeon. The Giradoga is a direct successor to the Zaku II, perhaps even more so than the Zaku III of Double Zeta. The red ships of Char's fleet, like the Rulula or the Musaka, harken back to one-year war-era ships like the Guazin. While Char's specific iconography is new, it is still immediately recognizable as Zeonic. There are changes, places where we can see that a deliberate effort has been made to create something new, which nonetheless evokes part of the spirit of the original, in the same way that Char's political rhetoric attempts to evoke the same spirit of spacenoid nationalism that animated the Zabi movement while distancing itself from their failures and excesses. The ornate golden designs on the breasts of their uniforms are gone, except on the uniform Char wears when he really wants to impress people with his Charness. And even that one is significantly less complex than the Xeon uniforms of old. At the same time, the stiff red collars with gold ornamentation return. These adorned the uniforms of practically every Xeon soldier, from the lowest private to the most esteemed admiral, but now they have undergone a curious bit of divergent evolution. On the one hand, the original version, with gold trim along the edges, abstract golden wings over the throat, thorn-like curlicues decorating the sides, and something like a leaf or a pine cone on the back, has remained without any meaningful changes as part of the dress uniform for the movement's high officers. You can see it during the secret meeting at Londinian, and during Char's speech before the fleet departs. But accepting those old veteran generals, the iconic collars have been stripped from the Neozeon uniforms. Instead, a simplified version with just the golden throat wings and trim has been integrated into the normal suits of their pilots. This is new. They have not appeared on pilot suits before. Haman's suit from the end of Double Zeta did have a red band partway around the neck, but none of the distinctive gold flourishes. These crimson and gold collars can be traced back to the Prussian army, whose famous Prussian blue uniforms were accented with bright red collars and gold leaf. But as with these kinds of visual references, it is hard to be sure how direct the transfer was. The Prussian land army was so renowned that other nations eagerly copied their model, often hiring Prussian advisors to train their troops. Such was the case in Japan. In the 1880s, they began bringing in Prussian advisors, and in 1886, as part of a major package of reforms, the Imperial Japanese Army threw out their old French-inspired uniforms and switched to ones copied nearly exactly from the Prussian Army, including red and gold collars. In the Gundam universe, perhaps these collars are now intended to evoke the legend of Shar Aznable Ace Pilot. His pilot suit, like all the others, had no such ornamentation, but during the one-year war he notoriously did not wear it. So he piloted with his fancy Xeon collar showing, and now his devotees wear it when they fly into battle. Ironically, Shar himself is one of the only pilots in his army who does not have one of those collars on his pilot suit. 
I find the gold wings on the collar to be especially interesting because it's not just a Xeon and Neo-Xeon symbol. A nearly identical design crops up in the patches worn by the Titans, or Tetons, in Zeta Gundam. Like the Hyzak and their practice of gassing colonies, it is part of how the show tells us that the Titans represent a continuation of old Zeon's callous disregard for human life. Thus, in episode 7 of Zeta, when Quattro confronts Lila Milarira in the ruins of the gassed Colony 30, and tells her that the Earth Federation is becoming the new Zabi family. I highlight the collar in particular because it has a fascinating relationship to Char's principal iconography. There are three Neo-Zeon symbols that appear repeatedly in the movie, and they are all linked because all three of them feature abstract Art Deco-style wings with separated feathers, just like the collars. When Char puts on his dress uniform, the one with the cape and the sword, and goes to give his big speech, he's wearing gold braid on his chest, in a design that resembles his old collar. It's got the same vertical golden line, down the center, from which emerge golden wings with visible pinions. A similar symbol is displayed on the shields of the Neo-Zeon mobile suits, although these add a diamond shape at the top and a spike at the bottom. That spike, and the extra bits below the wings, seem to have been derived from the old Principality of Xeon emblem. The third symbol is more distinct. It's a silver pin worn on the left breast of the Neo-Zeon uniform. Although somewhat inconsistently drawn, we can still see that this silver pin features the same general design as on the other two, a vertical body with wings in the upper third and some other unknown elements protruding in the lower third. The upper portion, the abstract wings design, is also worn at the collar of some uniforms, looking rather like an oversized zipper pull. Viewed together, it starts to become clear that these three designs are all derived from the same concept, a bird of prey displaying its wings. But the movie goes one step further, and actually confirms this for us in a brief but crucial scene. When Char gives his famous speech at the Sweetwater Colony before launching his fleet, he does so from behind a large black podium, which is itself on a huge red dais, which is in turn erected onto an enormous black platform overlooking the hangar. I mention the podium, the dais, and the platform because each of them is emblazoned with a huge golden icon of a bird of prey, with wings outstretched, the distinctly hooked beak of an eagle, and something kind of spike-shaped clutched in its talons. The camera shows us each in turn, moving from the largest to the smallest, black, then red, then black again. And after the final black image, the podium with its gold eagle, it shows us a final red one, Char's red chest, with the gold design thereon. The visual message is that these are essentially the same symbol. Moreover, when Char's holographic image is broadcast to the whole fleet, the image of the eagle on the podium has been edited out and replaced by the image which appears on his chest, all but telling us outright that the one is equivalent to the other. But if that's the case, what does it mean? Why an eagle? Why this eagle? Eagles are common enough symbols around the world. This isn't surprising. They're cool, powerful, intimidating-looking birds. In Asia, an eagle might evoke the Hindu and Buddhist bird deity Garuda, as in Indonesia's coat of arms, the Garuda Panchasila, or on Thailand's national emblem. 
In North America, eagles are revered by indigenous cultures across the continent. But the aesthetic of Charles Neozeon is European through and through, so it is to Europe's use of eagles that we must turn. In Europe, specifically, the eagle recalls the grandeur and military might of the Roman Empire. The Roman legions famously marched under eagle standards called Aquila, and the German rulers of the Holy Roman Empire adopted the imperial eagle, or Reichsadler, as their own emblem. It's possible this was first done by Charlemagne himself as part of his effort to claim the title Emperor of the Romans, but the lack of sources from that era makes it hard to be sure. Whoever started it, their successors eagerly adopted the imperial eagle. By the 12th century, a black eagle on a golden background had become the immediately recognizable symbol of German state power. In the 19th century, when power in Germany was divided between Prussia and Austria, both rival monarchies used a version of the imperial eagle on their coat of arms. By this point, the imperial eagle had developed a distinctive arrangement that will be familiar to many of you. Its body faces forward, and its wings are outstretched on either side, feathers on display. Sometimes the feathers point upward or out, but usually downward. The eagle's head is turned to look over its right shoulder. Its talons are outstretched symmetrically, one on either side. Below and between the talons, the bird's tail feathers splay out. Its colors are black, red, and gold. In other words, it's the same arrangement of eagle elements as in the symbol on Char's podium. Only, the eagle on Char's podium seems to be standing atop some other unknown symbol. I'll come back to that later. When Prussia unified the independent German states into the German Empire, Kaiser Wilhelm issued the Imperial Rescript of August 3, 1871, declaring the new imperial coat of arms to be, quote, the black, one-headed, rightward-looking eagle with red beak, tongue, and claws, without scepter and orb, on the breast shield the Prussian eagle, overlaid with the shield of the House of Hohenzollern. Which is to say that the coat of arms of the German Empire was a black imperial eagle, and on that eagle's chest there was a shield, and on that shield was displayed another smaller imperial eagle with an even smaller shield on its chest. This black eagle would generally be displayed on a gold or yellow background. Following the end of the First World War, the newly established Weimar Republic, presumably eager to differentiate themselves from the defeated German Empire and the discredited Kaisers, abolished the use of that horrible, despotic old imperial eagle, and instead they adopted a new, modern, federal eagle. A simplified version of the imperial eagle, still black with red details on a yellow background, still looking to the right, but with all the scepters, crowns, and heraldic escutcheons stripped away. You can probably guess where this is going next. In 1933, the Nazi party adopted a stylized version of the imperial eagle as their own party symbol, and in 1935, as part of their takeover of the government, they replaced the Weimar Republic's version of the eagle with one based on their own. The Nazi eagle departed from the old German imperial eagle in a few significant ways. First, they stripped the color out of it. No more black eagle with red or gold claws, and there would be no tongue of any color in their emblem. The eagle became monochrome, black, gold, or silver. The yellow backgrounds were out. 
With a few exceptions, the eagle would appear on red, black, or white backgrounds. Most importantly of all, it would appear with the Nazi swastika, usually holding or standing upon one. And of course, flags displaying these eagles would sometimes be draped over the podiums at Nazi rallies. They loved their pomp and ceremony. The eagle was a natural symbol for the fascists of the 20th century. The Italian fascists used one too, calling back to the imagined glories of the Roman Empire in the same way the Nazis harkened back to their own mythologized version of Germany's past. Schar's iconography, including the eagle, serves a similar function, connecting him to the imagined legacy of Old Zeon. But for the real-world audience and the artists behind the movie, it raises broader questions. Is Neo Zeon's symbolism meant to conjure up images of the famous Nazi eagle? Or is it just a coincidence that both regimes adopted the image of a gold eagle on a red background? Wings outstretched, head turned to the right, clutching some symbol in its talons. Schar's podium eagle is more detailed, more organic and realistic than the Nazi version, but the simplified, abstract wing designs on the collar, the silver pins, the look of the Giradoga mobile suits, and the name of the Yachtsdoga, all taken together, suggest a certain preoccupation with 20th century Germany. Within the story, maybe Schar was, or his handlers were, intentionally evoking the half-remembered legacy of the Nazis, with the same ignorance that Gierenzabi displayed about Hitler back in First Gundam. Maybe they saw a picture in an old book and thought it looked cool. Maybe they hired Space Hugo Boss to design their uniforms. And again, there are lots of eagle symbols out there. Maybe this one has nothing to do with the Nazis. There's a rightward-looking eagle on the Great Seal of the United States. And as I mentioned before, there's a similar one on the Indonesian coat of arms. The Achaemenids of ancient Persia used eagles in their iconography too. Although I've never heard anyone try to argue that Shars Neo-Zeon is meant as a stand-in for the United States, Indonesia, or ancient Persia. Indeed, it's entirely possible that Shars Neo-Zeon eagle is meant to be nothing more than a symbol of the power and legitimacy of his nascent nation-state. But this is not the first time Zeon has deployed symbols with complicated real-world histories. In First Gundam, the banners at Garma's funeral displayed white crosses on a black background that are, unmistakably, the Iron Cross, once a symbol of the Teutonic Order, later awarded as a military decoration by the Kingdom of Prussia, and then enthusiastically adopted by the Nazis. Those funeral banners also showed another emblem, a red disc from which white rays emanated. That looks, let's just say, not entirely unlike the rising sun flag of Imperial Japan. Or perhaps Shar's eagle is based on a symbol more obscure to us, but maybe more familiar to a Japanese audience. Aspects of the Neozeon insignia closely resemble that of the Imperial Japanese Army Air Force's famous 64th Sentai unit. Their emblem, a red eagle with wings out and head looking to the right resembles the Nazi-style eagle more than a little. It was originally the personal mark of the legendary fighter ace Kato Tateo, who made his name as a nightmare in the skies over China from 1936 until he was shot down in 1942. When he took command of the 64th Sentai, his mark became their mark. After Kato was shot down by a British turret gunner, 
his life story was turned into a hit propaganda film, Colonel Kato's Falcon Squadron, in 1944. The special effects for the film were directed by Tsuburaya Eiji, the godfather of tokusatsu, who would later work on Godzilla and Ultraman. Falcon Squadron was a huge hit at the time, and it was re-released to theaters in 1963, so it's likely Tomino and his contemporaries were familiar with it. The movie's opening titles appear with the eagle emblem, and the squadron's anthem, sung during the movie, refers to the red eagles on our chests as the symbol of their unit. If I'm reading the Japanese correctly, this song was rather a hit after the movie came out. And although it does not appear in Char's counterattack, there is or will be a Char Aznable personal insignia, which looks shockingly similar to Colonel Kato's Red Eagle. Perhaps rather than a pivot toward Germany, the eagle on Char's chest is a reference to the Japanese Empire. Or perhaps not. These symbols all have histories that predated the fascists who co-opted them and survived after they lost power. The Federal Republic of Germany put an eagle back on their coat of arms after World War II, and they still award a military decoration based on the Iron Cross. The old rising sun flag is a hated symbol of imperial oppression throughout much of Asia, but the Japanese self-defense forces still fly it proudly. Meaning has a way of lingering on symbols, but it can change faster than we expect. We can't know with precision what something like this was meant to convey. Learning where symbols come from or what things mean isn't a decoder ring that unlocks the movie's true message. It's never as simple as saying that Char's eagle resembles the Nazi eagle and thus the movie must be calling him literally Hitler. All it can really give us is evidence and implication. It might imply that the grandiosity of his movement is as hollow and artificial as was that of the Nazis. It might imply that his messianic plan to forcibly trigger the advent of new types by exterminating the unworthy inhabitants of Earth is little different from the Nazi quest to create a superhuman master race through eugenics and genocide. It might imply that like Colonel Kato, Shar was a talented pilot in the service of a monstrous imperial ideology whose life has become mere ammunition for propaganda. Or it might not mean any of those things. All we can really do is consider it alongside what he says and does not say, does and does not do throughout the movie. Next time on episode 4.5, you belong to me, I belong to you, we belong to the Earth. We discuss character psychology in Char's counterattack and... Char on Char. Cutting the cord. Are you my mother? It's very Freudian. What is? All of it. Baby Char do 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 Baby Char do 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 Guys really will pick up the mantle of their dead father instead of just going to therapy. And, unlike other episodes of Mobile Suit Breakdown, this one is about the characters. You can change your destiny.
Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram, at GundamPodcast, on Facebook, at Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast, or by email, at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. The World Health Organization says that fully vaccinated Gundam fans can now share their wrong Gundam opinions on deserted street corners. So get out there and shout, some people say Gune is a Camille clone, and some would have you believe Quest is a Pudu clone. But the truth is that Nanai is a Rekoa clone. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. So you admit there are clones in Gundam. I said it was a wrong Gundam opinion. The wrong Gundam opinion this week came from a patron who wishes to remain anonymous. Thank you, anonymous patron, for your bad opinions. You construct intercult rituals to touch the lapels of other men. (laughs) (laughs) I was just... Basically, I was just commenting that there is a little bit of an extra parallel between Char, who's... Sure, sure. I, I should yeah. clarify. I'm doing a transition right now. Uh, <laughs> so I'm not supposed to defend my I'm position? Not, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm transitioning us to talking about a different aspect of quests. All right, go for it. Would you like um, to start again? Yes, I think, I think that's best. Let's um, let's go back to talking about someone else who doesn't share our values. <laughs> <laughs> which one? All of them? Yeah, which them? one? Yeah, well, yeah, everybody. Literally everyone. Yep. How the way can stay? He's a polite young man. He he does a bad thing. He does a, a very boy. bad thing. What the murder? Ast- Astanaji is uh, Astanaji can stay. He's dead. A lot yeah. of people are dead, Nina. So I'm going to pop some like really early uh, Ray-Bans advertising in there. Oh, wow. He's just literally lost. What are those sunglasses you just posted? Oh, oh my God. Those are, sorry, uh, sorry those are uh, Victorian uh, railway sunglasses. Those are amazing. I think... It was the last time I was in New York for a no context, right? Or maybe the time before that. I don't know. No, it was when I was in LA. It was when Edward and I, I dragged poor Edward to go watch Char's counterattack with literally no context. Um, Ideal. <laughs> and, uh... Thank you, everyone. Yeah. Slightly yeah. more of a marathon than we had planned, but seemed like everybody was into it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You should all be worrying about the misfortunes of your youth. Who is the Garma in your life, Sean? I, I just want to know. <laughs> I think I might be my own Garma, if I'm honest. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> nose protectors in the chat. All right, well, we were we were going to talk about Char's counterattack, but I guess now we're podcasting about Victoria nose protectors. We received a great many compliments about that, and so we were basically forced to bring you back. <laughs> mm-hmm. Pandering to your audience, I see. Isn't that how podcasting works? <laughs> That's how good podcasts work. <laughs> I'm incapable of that. Back to work. Back to work. I'll try. Bring it down. Serious time. Uh, The the bit about, like, feels rather pointed. (laughs) And I understand why you did it. It might not feel quite so pointed to someone who hasn't had those conversations with you. But to me, I'm like, (laughs) 